Thank you, Daniel. Um, and welcome everyone. Um, thank you for joining us and we hope everyone is staying safe and well. Um, my name is Priya Amar. I am with Fiduciary Trust and on behalf of the BBA Trust and Estate CLE Committee, uh, we're so happy that you could join us. Um, we have a great webinar planned for you today, this afternoon, on understanding and planning for your client's assets, um, focusing on specific assets that may require a little more attention and care and planning from an estate planning perspective. Um, the webinar will be 90 minutes split into two halves. Uh, first, Matt Hillary will discuss retirement benefits, and then Kelly Aylward will discuss life insurance vacation residences, and IP rights. So it should be really exciting. Um, just a little bit more housekeeping before we get started. Um, you may have heard that this webinar is hosted by the CLE committee, um, and we're really hoping that this CLE, uh, that this webinar will be accredited as a CLE. Uh, we're working on it, and um, either way, we will, the BBA will let you know um, whether it is accredited. Um, and also, with respect to the presenter's materials, uh, they should be sent to you shortly after this webinar. Um, so you will have those in your emails. And I just wanted to quickly go over the structure. As I, as I mentioned, we'll do this sort of in two halves. So first, Matt Hillary will speak first. And um, we'll do, at the end of his presentation, we'll do 15 minutes of Q&A. And as Daniel mentioned, if you look at the bottom of your screen, you'll see a Q&A tab. Um, as you ask questions, um, please submit your questions through the Q&A tab and I'll keep an eye on those. Um, please do not submit them through the chat tab. That would be appreciated. Um, and then Kelly will give her presentation and we'll do 15 minutes or so of Q&A and um, if there is time left over and if you had any general questions about any type of specific assets, whether they were included or not included in the presentation, feel free to ask those as well. Um, and since the questions will follow each specific presentation, we just ask that, um, and the presenters will be covering a lot of different topics as they go, to the extent your questions can be as specific as possible, that will be much appreciated. Um, okay, so let's get started with Matt Hillary. I'll just do a quick introduction, Matt. Um, Matt Hillary is a trust and estates lawyer and director in the private client group at Coulson and Stores, um, and someone I've had the honor and pleasure working with for many years. Uh, his practice focuses on estate and tax planning, trust and estate administration, um, and the formation and operation of nonprofit and issues related to charitable giving. He advises clients both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, including individuals, families, business owners, and trust companies. And into, in addition to all of that, he counsels individuals who immigrate or invest in the U.S., as well as Americans who uh, live abroad. And he also advises institutions and individuals on charitable gift planning strategies. So thank you, Matt, and uh, take it away. Thank you, Priya. Uh, I appreciate it. So as Priya indicated, I, I'm going to speak about uh, specifically retirement benefits uh, with a focus on changes made uh, by the SECURE Act. <clears throat> so in this first slide, 
making the point that uh, planning for retirement benefits is important because they're a very common asset that people walk in the door with. Uh, oftentimes they are uh, a major source of the client's liquid assets, sometimes the, the biggest liquid assets that the client holds, and they come with uh, very special tax rules that we're going to discuss coming up. Uh, first though, uh, the Federal Reserve did a survey a couple of years ago of non-retirees, so people who are still in the workforce, and determined that 55% of them have uh, defined contribution plans like 401ks or 403bs, 32% have IRAs, and 26% uh, still have defined benefit pension plans. It's possible that uh, some people may have more than one of these, so a 401k from a current employer and an IRA from a prior employer. These can come in all different sizes, but there are certainly some uh, big accounts out there. In a report published by Fidelity, uh, it disclosed that it had 180,000 401k accounts worth more than a million dollars and 168,100 IRA accounts over that threshold. That number uh, was valued as of the first quarter of 2019, so it doesn't take into account uh, recent market declines, but it's indicative of the fact that there truly are some very large retirement accounts out there. And while I'm going to spend a decent amount of time speaking about <clears throat> changes to retirement planning, I wanted to just uh, make sure that we touched upon a, a few constants first. Um, one is the way that, um, that these accounts are treated for income tax purposes. So traditional accounts are deductible when contributions are made, uh, but the withdrawals are taxable as ordinary income. So uh, a typical person will contribute to an IRA or a 401k uh, and reduce uh, his or her taxable income in the year of contribution. And then in the future, when that person uh, retires and starts taking out withdrawals, everything comes out as ordinary income. Even if most of the growth in the account was through uh, qualified dividends or capital gains. Roth accounts work in the exact opposite way. Uh, there are no deductions for income tax, uh, for contributions made uh, to the account, but withdrawals are tax-free. So uh, these can be incredibly valuable to people who expect to either have very large accounts or expect to have uh, relatively high incomes in the future. With both types of retirement accounts, and by retirement accounts, I'm referring mostly to defined contribution plans and IRAs. Uh, one of the keys is that investment earnings in the account are not subject to current income taxation. So all of the growth within the account happens tax-free while the money is in the account. Uh, and this creates a deferral in the case of a traditional account of the tax on, on the investment earnings. This is a key benefit of the accounts. Um, retirement accounts, of course, are subject to estate tax. There's no exclusion for them. Uh, and they're subject dollar for, and they're taxable dollar for dollar 
in uh, a person's federal and Massachusetts gross estates, even though um, one can't get 100 cents on the dollar out of a traditional account uh, because you have to pay the income tax on it. There is a deduction for federal estate tax paid uh, on uh, a federal income tax return. So the beneficiaries do get some break to the extent that an account is large enough or a person's other assets are large enough to attract a federal estate tax, but there isn't a break uh, for state purposes. This double taxation, federal and income tax, of traditional accounts is a reason why a, a former colleague of mine referred to retirement accounts as the dirtiest money around. Uh, it's the old, one of the few types of assets that is subject to tax uh, in, in both ways. So the SECURE Act uh, attracted an awful lot of headlines uh, at the end of last year, in the beginning of this year, and was one of the main estate planning topics until it was replaced by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the SECURE Act was enacted late in the year, December 20th, and it made uh, many changes to retirement plan rules uh, that were effective for retirement accounts whose owners died after December 31st. So to the extent that you're dealing with somebody who is a beneficiary of, of an inherited IRA, for example, and the account owner died prior to December 31st of 2019, there's no current change um, for the most part. But this does create planning issues for uh, clients who are IRA owners or 401k owners who are alive now because they and their heirs will be subject to these rules. <clears throat> so a couple of changes that were made during the owner's lifetime. Um, the first is that the required beginning date for taking uh, mandatory withdrawals from an account changed. Uh, in a traditional IRA, the required beginning date is now April 1st of the calendar year after the calendar year when the owner reaches age 72. It used to be 70 and a half. Uh, there's no change to, made to a Roth IRA because it doesn't have a required beginning date. And then for qualified plans like 401ks, uh, the required beginning date is now the later of April 1st of the calendar year after the calendar year when the owner reaches age 72 or the calendar year in which the owner retires. Uh, in doing this, I think the Congress recognized people live longer uh, and that these accounts need to last longer. So it created 18 months or so of additional deferral. It's now also possible for people to make tax deductible contributions uh, to IRAs later. It used to be that it wasn't possible to do this after age 70 and a half, but that restriction has been lifted. So a person who's continuing to work or just has the money can keep funding an IRA even after that age. Uh, the SECURE Act also made a change to the so-called IRA charitable rollover. In this provision, the, uh, the rollover has been around for several years. 
the basic rules that an owner can uh, contribute up to $100,000 per year directly to a public charity out of an individual retirement account. Now, public charities for purposes of the charitable rollover don't include supporting organizations or donor advised funds. Uh, they're really limited to active uh, charities. This $100,000 distribution counts against the account owner's required minimum distribution and is not included in the account owner's income. The, um, the $100,000 distribution, however, is not deductible on the owner's income tax return. So people might say, well, what's the point of that if I take the money out and I don't get a deduction? Uh, if you think about it though, the IRA charitable rollover effectively creates a 100% deduction for the money because it never goes into the account owner's income in the first place. Outside of 2020, uh, people are usually subject to AGI limitations on the portion of their income that they can contribute, uh, that they can deduct uh, when making contributions to public charities. So the SECURE Act uh, went and tweaked the IRA charitable rollover rules a little bit, uh, basically by providing that, um, <clears throat> that contributions made to an individual retirement account after age 70 and a half have to be taken into account when doing the IRA charitable rollover. And the amount that a person can uh, direct to a charity is reduced by the total amount of post age 70 and a half contributions that someone has made uh, during life. The idea is, that, is to prevent people from getting a deduction for funding the money into the individual retirement account. And then this other 100% deduction on its later transfer to charity. The big changes in the SECURE Act that have uh, attracted most of the ink uh, happen after the owner's death. And if you wanna look for these, they're in section 401 of the Act. Uh, that is, as a hint, in the revenue provisions of the Act. So these are designed to go and raise money for the federal FISC. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, the new rules went and changed the categories of beneficiaries of an account after the owner's death. There used to be only two categories, designated beneficiaries and everybody else. Uh, now there is a new third category called eligible designated beneficiaries. The lifetime stretch out of um, retirement benefits used to be available for any designated beneficiary. Now, as a result of the SECURE Act, it's available only to eligible designated beneficiaries. As I said, this change creates revenue for the federal government. And that's because uh, regular old designated beneficiaries have to take uh, withdrawals more quickly they are no longer able to go and stretch them over their life expectancies. The Congressional Budget Office expected that this would produce $15.7 billion of additional tax revenue over 10 years. And frankly, this money was used to offset other provisions of the SECURE Act. Uh, 
I will say this again, I think later in the presentation, but this change is a cautionary tale for irrevocable planning because Congress went and changed the rules of the game after many people had made decisions about how to fund, uh, fund their retirement plans based off of the old rules. So under the new regime, uh, designated beneficiaries still have to be individuals. We'll get to um, the certain you know, benefited class of eligible designated beneficiaries in a minute, but common examples of people who are plain old designated beneficiaries these days are adult children, uh, grandchildren, regardless of their age, siblings, and uh, see-through trusts for the benefit of designated beneficiaries. All of these people now have 10 years to withdraw inherited retirement benefits from an account. It doesn't have to be done ratably over 10 years. It can be done all in the beginning, all at the end, evenly throughout the 10 years, however people want to do it. But there's a 10-year time limit in which to accomplish the withdrawal. Eligible designated beneficiaries are a special subset of designated beneficiaries that Congress thought still merited uh, lifetime withdrawals. Um, and they are in five categories. So surviving spouse, a minor child, while the child is a minor, a disabled individual, chronically ill individual, or an individual who is not uh, more than 10 years younger than the owner. Uh, I'm mostly going to focus on surviving spouse and minor child, but I will note that in the last category, someone who's not more than 10 years younger, that could be siblings or close friends. Uh, who's a minor child? Uh, the, reg the regulations say that uh, a child may be treated as not having reached the age of majority if the child has not completed a specified course of education and is under the age of 26. Uh, the act doesn't say who a minor is. So if we look at the regulations, uh, we think that perhaps at an outside limit, you could be 26 years old and a minor. Uh, so long as you haven't otherwise reached the age of majority. Uh, the age of majority isn't defined, nor is a specified course of education. So this is a hazy definition. Uh, if you do have a minor child who is uh, an eligible designated beneficiary, that child takes out or is able to take out retirement benefits each year over his or her life expectancy until that child ceases to be a minor. At that point, uh, the SECURE Act states that the 10-year rule kicks in. So you could have lifetime withdrawals uh, up until uh, potentially age 26, and then 10 years on top of that, up until potentially age 36. Uh, I know that there's a lot of discussion in the media these days about curves, bending the curves. You can imagine if you plotted out a minor's withdrawal, it would look almost like a hockey stick where it's a sort of a flat curve uh, for the first 26 years and then it spikes up. 
but this is the, uh, the system that we have been given. For everybody else, uh, for people who are not designated beneficiaries or eligible designated beneficiaries, uh, the old withdrawal rules still apply. These are typically going to be uh, beneficiaries who are charity, the account owner's estate, or a trust that is not a see-through trust. And the withdrawal period uh, really depends upon uh, where the account owner was at the time of death. If the account owner died before his or her required beginning date, which is now keyed off of age 72, uh, then the beneficiary has up to five years to withdraw the account. If the owner died after the required beginning date, uh, the account can be withdrawn over the owner's remaining life expectancy. And I had never heard this term before the SECURE Act passed, but it's, it's often been described as the person's ghost life. Uh, and that ghost life can be longer than five years, it can be even longer than 10 years. So for example, if you look at the single life table for a person who's 73 years old, uh, the account owner is expected to live another 14.8 years. So having a beneficiary that's not a designated beneficiary or as eligible designated beneficiary might not be the end of the world in some circumstances. So <clears throat> it's possible to go and leave retirement benefits um, to certain kinds of trusts and look through the trust to the underlying beneficiaries in order to see um, whether you're dealing with designated or eligible designated beneficiaries and uh, base the withdrawals from the trust uh, upon the identities of the beneficiaries. These are called see-through trusts. And there are respectively two types. The first is the conduit trust, uh, which forces out um, all uh, required minimum distributions and, and any other property withdrawn from the trust during the year and pays it out um, to a particular beneficiary. The conduit beneficiary is treated as the sole beneficiary of the trust for purposes of the required minimum distribution rules, which means that the withdrawal period is based upon that beneficiary's characteristics. If it's an eligible designated beneficiary, you take RMDs based upon that person's life expectancy. If it's a regular old designated beneficiary, it's 10 years. Um, any potential future beneficiaries are ignored, um, even if they're charities, younger persons, estates, the beneficiary can have a power of appointment and it's no problem. The other type is a so-called accumulation trust. And in an accumulation trust, uh, there is not a requirement that uh, withdrawals be passed through on a current basis to the beneficiaries. Instead, the trustee can accumulate the reti retirement account distributions and has discretion to pay them out, just like with other trust property. Um, these trusts, though, are somewhat more complicated to, uh, to administer because you have to look at all of the beneficiaries who might ever receive the withdrawn funds 
uh, and they all have to be designated beneficiaries or eligible designated beneficiaries in order for the trust to work as an accumulation trust. Uh, that means all of the counted beneficiaries must be individuals. In order to achieve this, it can be uh, common to draft the trust so that it terminates and distributes out to the so-called last man standing, so the last identifiable individual beneficiary. Uh, these trusts can be problematic uh, if that's not what you want to do, uh, especially if, if that's a uh, dispositive scheme that differs from the way other assets are treated, or if the client thinks it's important to benefit charities or provide uh, powers of appointment to spouses and the like. Uh, my firm tends to use conduit trusts. I know other firms use accumulation trusts, but these are still the only two options. And the thinking is that the SECURE Act did not change any of these rules and, and that the conduit trust and accumulation trust rules from the uh, 401A9 regulations and from private letter rulings are still in effect. Uh, the difference though is that unless you have eligible designated beneficiaries, the most you're going to get out of one of these trusts is a 10-year withdrawal period from the account. <clears throat> now, in addition to the Securities Act, we've also had the CARES Act, uh, which was passed in uh, response to the COVID-19 epidemic. And um, the CARES Act makes a couple of changes that are very short term that apply to retirement accounts. So it's worth mentioning. And these fall into two categories in my mind. Um, they can be helpful to those who don't need the money and they can be helpful to those who do. So for those who afford it uh, or, or who can afford it, uh, the CARES Act creates a new section 401A9I, which is applicable this year and it suspends required minimum distributions for 2020. And this creates a, an additional deferral opportunity for people who have traditional accounts and who are past their required beginning dates. So they can take that uh, 2020 RMD, leave it in the account and allow it to continue growing tax-free. <laughs> for those people who need the funds though, um, the CARES Act created a special coronavirus-related distribution of up to $100,000 per participant. This can be taken out without the usual 10% early withdrawal penalty for people who are under age 59 and a half. And the distribution isn't even all taxed in 2020. It can be taxed over a three-year period or repaid uh, without incurring tax over that same three-year period. And then the amount, the maximum amount of a loan that a person can take out of a 401k account has increased from $50,000 to $100,000. All right, some planning issues uh, <clears throat> from the SECURE Act. So I, I think that the Act has created an increased tension between income tax deferral and estate tax minimization in divorce and creditor protection. Uh, and this is because the, the lifetime stretch out is gone for the vast majority of beneficiaries other than surviving spouses. Uh, 
use of a conduit trust should get the same distribution period as outright ownership. Uh, but a an added benefit of the trust is that it still provides estate tax and creditor protection during the trust term. So for clients with large accounts who you know, want to benefit uh, adult children, especially, especially older children, they can buy 10 years of divorce and creditor protection and estate tax protection by running the retirement account through a conduit trust. Uh, and that protection adheres just to whatever's in the account at, uh, at the time that it becomes important. You get the same result though, also for an accumulation trust, uh, but the last man standing approach might not be desirable. Uh, a trust that is not a designated beneficiary provides maximum uh, estate tax and creditor protection because there's no requirement that the funds be paid out to the beneficiaries from the trust after they were withdrawn uh, from the retirement account. But just for shorthand, we're gonna say five years of deferral or ghost life is all that you get. Uh, so this, so for clients who are very, very focused on estate tax savings, or they have uh, children who are spendthrifts, or they have children with bad marriages, or people who are in uh, high-risk professions, uh, using a trust that is not a see-through trust may be the best answer. And in that situation, the cost of doing so is 10 years of income tax-free growth for the retirement account. Uh, for other people, trust is still a good backup uh, for a limited period of time, but uh, they might focus on getting that 10-year uh, period. I think that the calculus will change depending upon whether you're dealing with adult beneficiaries uh, and where those beneficiaries are in life or minor beneficiaries. Uh, Roth IRAs are especially problematic under the SECURE Act. Uh, and that is because in, in my limited experience since this has passed, uh, the clients are still very focused on the income tax deferral benefits of these accounts. Oftentimes clients have funded these at great cost, either by contributing to them on an after-tax basis or by doing costly Roth conversions at some point uh, during their lives. So they have paid for the income tax-free uh, distributions from the trust, and they don't wanna do anything that will diminish that. Uh, so in conversations with clients since late December, we've hashed out the pros and cons of forcing a, uh, forcing large Roth retirement accounts into trusts that don't qualify as designated beneficiaries and just accepting five years or using a conduit trust or using an accumulation trust. And clients have typically gone and in my, again, in my limited experience over the last five months and said, I want the full 10 years, however I can get it. Um, I think that because because there's so much tension with these types of accounts, it's worth documenting in some way uh, what the clients decide to do and why. So if a client says, 
I don't care about estate taxes. I don't care about divorce and creditor. I want to leave it to my child outright so that he or she gets the full 10 years and I don't want to worry about a trust. That's fine. It's the client's right to do so. But I believe that the decision should be documented. Um, and I'm repeating myself here, but I will say again that the this aspect of the SECURE Act shows the dangers of irrevocable planning, uh, which is something that all of us on this call do every day as part of our jobs. Uh, this is an example of, uh, I think, Congress changing the rules on people who uh, decided to fund these accounts based on, in part, a desire to leave lifetime income tax-free income to their children. And that wasn't, a con that wasn't something that Congress took into consideration when it made the change. So when people do irrevocable planning, uh, and when we counsel people on these issues, we always have to remind them that what we are proposing may work under current law, but may not work under future law. Uh, as a last point, I just want to talk about charitable remainder trusts. These have been floated as a solution to the SECURE Act. So how can a person go and still get a lifetime stretch out uh, and not be bound by a mere 10 years? And it's true, one could do this. Uh, so the, as I'm sure people know there are two basic types of charitable remainder trusts. There are charitable remainder unit trusts and charitable remainder annuity trusts. Unit trusts pay a set percentage of the trust assets each year. So payments rise and fall with the value of the trust property. A annuity trust pays an annuity each year. Payment is constant regardless of the value of the trust property. The minimum payout is 5% per year. Uh, a charitable remainder unit, a charitable remainder trust has to be structured so that, uh, as measured at the beginning, at least 10% of the trust value is supposed to pass to charity. And um, these can be structured so that they last for life or a term of years. So the idea is that uh, someone would go and name a charitable remainder trust as the beneficiary of, say, an IRA. And at the owner's death, uh, the IRA would become the new owner, excuse me, the charitable remainder trust would become the new owner of the IRA. If the remainder trust withdraws the entire account at that point, uh, there's no tax impact because the charitable remainder trust does not itself pay income taxes. And it can go and invest the money and that uh, money can grow income tax-free within the trust. When distributions are made out to the beneficiary, those distributions carry out income. And in a charitable remainder trust, income is carried out on a worst-in, first-out basis under the so-called tier system. So ordinary income comes out first, then um, dividends, capital gains, tax-free income, return of capital, on and on and on. So in a traditional uh, retirement account that pays out only ordinary income, all of the historic ordinary income would be carried out first before you ever got to dividends or capital gains. So this can, in a way, 
mimic uh, a lifetime stretch out with the caveats that there is a floor to the amount that must be paid out each year of 5%, uh, that at least 10% has to go to charity, and that uh, if the income beneficiary of the remainder trust dies early, whatever's left in the account goes to charity. It's out of the family. Uh, I have some clients who are considering doing this uh, because they're charitably inclined and they have large retirement accounts. So this, but this is not for everyone. A person who has no uh, charitable interest whatsoever I, would not be wise to take this approach because of the large possibility that uh, the retirement account could pass uh, to charity instead of to family. So I will stop there. Thank you, Matt. That was so great. Um, okay, so we got four questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted them. And uh, please feel free to continue to do that. So I'll just go from the start. Um, if an IRA has direct beneficiaries, rather than going into a probate estate, does it avoid estate tax? Doesn't it avoid estate tax and beneficiaries only pay income tax when they make withdrawals? So that, that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, the answer is no. Uh, and this is one of the tricky things in this line of work is that the term estate means different things in different contexts. So the estate for estate tax purposes is much broader than the estate for probate court purposes. And a retirement account uh, that is owned by a person is not a asset that passes through a probate estate because it instead passes by beneficiary designation, but is nonetheless included in the owner's gross estate of death and subject to estate tax. Thank you, Matt. Okay, next question. Is, an el is the eligible designated beneficiary withdrawal period retroactive to accounts that were active before the SECURE Act? So um, if I understand the, the question correctly, uh, it is, does the SECURE Act change the withdrawal period for people who are eligible designated beneficiaries and were so prior to the passage of the act? Uh, I would think the answer is no for two reasons. So one, the uh, changes to payments after an owner's death are effective for owners who die after December 31st, 2019. Uh, so if a person died in 2018, 2017, earlier in 2019, then the SECURE Act doesn't change anything. And then second, eligible designated beneficiaries have a lifetime payout under the SECURE Act and they still would have had a lifetime payout uh, <clears throat> under prior law. Thank you. Okay, two more. Um, can you please explain if Roth distributions are subject to income tax by beneficiaries after the owner's death? Uh, the answer is no. So, the, um, <clears throat> so they are tax-free to the owner and they are tax-free to the um, to the beneficiaries after the owner's death. The, the big difference though, is that the beneficiaries after the owner's death 
do have to take required minimum distributions. And that could be lifetime or 10 years or something else under the rules that we previously discussed. Okay, next question is a hypothetical and I'll try to take it in parts. Um, if a revocable trust says at the donor's death, the trust splits into three shares for three children, each held until the age of 35 with mandatory distributions at 25, 30, and 35. And before those withdrawal periods, the, the trust is discretionary. Does that count as an accumulation trust for designation, designated beneficiaries? Um, I, I think we'd have to know more about the trust terms. So uh, who, who would take in default of the children, how old the children are, what sort of powers of appointment they have. Uh, one, of the, <clears throat> one of the difficulties with those types of trusts is that there are a lot of questions that you have to ask. Yeah, I th so it seems like she's asking, um, you know, what if the, if paying, having to pay the tax 10 years after death, but the trust can still keep the money in the trust past the 10 year mark? So, uh, <coughs> so with an accumulation trust, um, if, it, if the trust did qualify, then, and, and if it were the beneficiary of a traditional account, the trust would have to pay tax on withdrawals, but would not have to immediately pass those withdrawals out to the trust beneficiaries, as is the case in a conduit trust. So the trust could get the money, pay the tax on it, and sit on the after-tax portion and distribute it out in the trustee's discretion if it qualifies as an accumulation trust. Okay. Um, and here she's saying, let's say one of the trust entities is a minor. Does the trust have only 10 years after the death to pay the tax or 10 years after the child ceases to be a minor? Um, So I, I think that this is one that I would probably have to answer offline because it's very fact specific. <laughs> thank you, Robin, and thank you, Matt. Um, okay, and last question. How does the beneficiary designation work when the owner of the account marries after setting up the account? Now the spouse has priority. Or what if, sorry, let's just start with that. So, um, uh, this might be an ERISA question. I, I know under qualified plans like 401ks, uh, the spouse has priority unless the spouse uh, waives it. And I, I don't believe that there is a comparable rule with IRAs. I think that, um, that when one marries, it always makes sense to revisit an estate plan. Uh, there are rules for how this works in the context of probate property. And I think as part of a, a review of one's overall estate planning, uh, it's important to go and look at beneficiary designations and update them as a result of marriage. Uh, but I, I think the, the particular answer to the question might depend on whether we're dealing with an IRA or a qualified plan. Okay. 
Oh, perfect timing, right at the 45 minute line. Thank you, Matt. Okay. Um, okay, so let's move on to Kelly. And I'll just do a quick introduction, Kelly. Um, and thank you everyone for your questions and keep them coming. Um, so Kelly will be speaking on um, insurance and vacation residences and, and IP rights. Kelly is also a, an exceptionally um, uh, an exceptionally accomplished panelist. So thank you, Kelly. Um, she's a principal at Lori and Cutler, and she focuses her practice on representing individuals and businesses in the areas of tax, business, and estate planning, including asset protection, business administration, and succession, trust and estate administration, and special needs planning and charitable planning. And on top of all of that, uh, she's the current president of the Boston Estate Planning Council. Uh, she's an ACTEC fellow and has been named a Massachusetts super lawyer and top woman attorney um, since 2015. So thank you, Kelly, so much for joining us and uh, take it away. Thanks very much and thanks for having me. Thanks to everybody also for joining in today. Um, I will admit to you that this is one of the first webinars I've done, so I hope I get all the technology correct. Uh, and um, let's get started. I'll also say, too, if there's time at the end, I know Priya said this before, and there are other assets that we haven't covered, um, please feel free to submit questions about that, and we'll do what we can to answer them. My presentation is really focused around three asset types. I'm gonna start with life insurance, then I'll talk about vacation residences, and then I'll talk about intellectual property. So, all right. With respect to life insurance, there are a number of reasons that people include life insurance in their estate plans. Um, might be just income replacement on the death of a spouse. Especially you see this with younger couples and it might be that both spouses are working and they're relying on the income to pay all of their bills and et cetera. It might also be that one spouse is a at-home um, caretaker for children. And if that spouse passes away, the other spouse is going to have to work and then pay for childcare. So often you'll see uh, uh, life insurance used as a tool to make sure that childcare can be covered that perhaps the mortgage can be paid off. Some of those, um, you know, sort of younger couple debt situations. Another reason is to provide liquidity um, for payment of estate tax. You might see it as uh, used as diversification of asset holdings for clients, especially very wealthy clients who are looking to diversify, uh, diversify their portfolios beyond uh, your traditional securities, bonds, cash. This is an option for them. And it might be used to equalize inheritance among descendants. I'll get into the estate tax um, portion of this and, and ownership in just a second, but just quickly talking about equalization of estate of inheritance among descendants. Oftentimes you see this in the context of um, a family that has a family business and one child perhaps is very active in the family business and will be given the family business as part of his or her inheritance. But the, the parents want to treat all the children equally 
as it pertains to the value of what they're getting by way of inheritance. So the family uh, or the parents, I should say, um, may purchase life insurance that benefits the children that are not going to inherit the parents to do that equalization. Moving on to estate tax considerations of life insurance. Um, there are three general ways that you see life insurance being owned. Either the insured is the owner of the policy, the spouse of the insured is the owner of the policy, or it is, the policy is trust owned. If the insured is the owner of the policy and passes away, that ent the entire death benefit on that policy will be included in that person's estate for estate tax purposes. Similar to the question that um, was posed with respect to IRAs that Matt answered a few minutes ago, uh, that the estate tax inclusion is different from probate and the, the need to qualify that as a probate asset. If there is a beneficiary designation, that insurance will not be included in the probate estate, but if it is owned by the person who is the insured, it will be included in the estate for estate tax purposes. Sometimes you see um, policies or clients that come in where the spouse owns the policy, and there's still some estate tax inclusion that needs to be considered there. Um, if the insured dies and the spouse is surviving, the uh, death benefit on the policy will not be included in the insured, insured's estate. However, if the surviving spouse then dies and has not spent all of the money, whatever is left will be included in his or her estate. Conversely, if spouse who owns the policy dies and is survived by the insured, spouse who owns the policy's estate will include whatever the value of that policy is on the date of his or her death. And the way that you get a policy valued that has not paid out yet is you request a Form 712 from the insurance company. Some types of insurance, like term insurance, have very little value during the term before the death of the insured. Other types of insurance, like whole life and universal policies, um, build up value over time, and there could be some significant value there. Um, so then the third type of ownership that we often see for insurance is trust-owned insurance. If you transfer life insurance or purchase life insurance with a trust in a special way, we often refer to them as irrevocable life insurance trusts or islets, there is a way to make sure that the death benefit on that policy is not included in the insured's estate or the spouse's estate, and also is held in trust under terms uh, chosen by the, uh, the parents or your clients that um, structure inheritance the way they'd like to see it for the children. If your client does own life insurance and then transfers it to a trust, they need to live for three years after the transfer into the trust for it to be excluded from the estate for estate tax purposes. So 
So I just mentioned irrevocable life insurance trusts are islets. If they're drafted and administered properly, they can hold insurance, as I said, and keep it out of uh, both estates. The benefits of an islet are numerous. Um, there's minimal use of lifetime gift tax exemption because you're really trying to utilize annual exclusion giving uh, by the inclusion of withdrawal powers for beneficiaries. And I'll get into that in just a minute. Another benefit, um, as I said, not included in the taxable estates of insured or spouse. If the trust is designed as a dynasty trust, then uh, there will be GST exemption, exemption or generation skipping transfer tax exemption allocated to the trust, but it's allocated as gifts are made to pay premiums, not on the death benefit. So there's a way, that's a method of getting more into this trust with minimal use of GST exemption as well. Um, depending on how the trust is drafted, the trust could provide asset protection for the beneficiaries. And again, similar to um, some of the comments Matt was making, it depends on how the trust is drafted and how distributions come out to the beneficiaries. But for example, under Massachusetts law, if distributions are made at the discretion of the trustee without the so-called HEM standard or health education maintenance and support, um, under current case law, that's protected from the reach of creditors, including potentially ex-spouses. Uh, death benefit of the life insurance policy owned by the trust can be used to provide liquidity to the estate for estate tax payment purposes. This is done in one of two ways. Either the islet buys illiquid assets out of the estate of the decedent in exchange for cash, or the islet makes a loan of cash to the estate to enable the estate to pay the estate tax and the estate and or trust that that really governs the um, administration of the estate, pays back the islet over time. You see that often, again, in the context of a family-owned business where there's not enough liquidity there when the decedent passes away, but there is liquidity coming in over the course of time, and that is used to then pay back the islet. If you're doing a loan transaction like that, I recommend that you uh, make sure there's a promissory note in place and that there is at least the AFR used for the interest rate and that it's paid. So how an islet works. The insured, this is generally, this is uh, how they're structured. Um, the insured will establish a trust. Spouse, child, or third party is trustee. The insured cannot be the trustee. Beneficiaries have the power to withdraw the proportional share of any contribution made to the trust. And what I mean by this is, let's say the annual premium is $10,000. The insured might make a gift of $10,000 to the trust. And if there are two beneficiaries of that trust, they would each have the ability to withdraw $5,000, which is their proportional share, up to the annual exclusion amount. This right of withdrawal that is usually um, only for a 30-day period gives that beneficiary a present interest in the gift to the trust. And that present interest enables that gift to be treated as an annual exclusion gift. 
The trustee then um, can use all those transfers to the trust to make annual premium payments. Although they're not required to, typically that is how the trustee chooses to utilize the assets gifted. When the insured dies, death benefit is paid to the trust and administered pursuant to the terms thereof. Ultimately, what this whole wrapper is doing is it's taking away all incidents of ownership that the insured has over the insurance policy. That means that the insured can't, as I said before, cannot be a benefit or can't be a trustee, certainly cannot be a beneficiary, cannot have any powers of appointment over the trust. They really can't do anything that um, would indicate any sort of control over the policy. Additionally, you'll often find that clients have life insurance through their employers. Sometimes it's a policy that pays a certain percentage of their income, maybe one and a half times or two and a half times their income. Um, when you are working with C-suite individuals, you might also see as part of their overall benefits package that the company provides separate life insurance for them. Often those policies are sort of maintained by the company and um, either the company is making premium payments on their behalf or amounts are being withheld from their checks or compensation to pay for the, for the um, life insurance. There are ways to have the client release all incidents of ownership over those company-driven policies. And the way that you do that is that you get in touch with the, co the company's HR department. They should have forms that um, the client can sign, release it, transferring all rights to the policy and incidents of ownership to the policy to the ILIP. Okay, vacation properties. I find vacation properties to be one of the most difficult things to plan with and talk to clients about. Clients love their vacation properties. They have, you know, spent years uh, making it sort of the family compound in some cases. They have great family memories of going there with their kids and grandkids. And it's really a source of pride and a source of family time for a lot of families. Leaving a vacation residence though to future generations is just, um, strife with problems. It, it could be really difficult. Um, so one of the ways people leave properties to future generations is through the use of a qualified personal residence trust or a QPERT. Generally, the strategy works a lot better in a higher interest rate environment because the value of the gift to the remainder beneficiaries, which I'll talk about in a second, um, is lower when we have a higher interest rate environment but it's still a tool that's available uh, for use now. The benefit of using a QPERT is that there's, it's a way to transfer property to future generations at a lower gift tax cost um, in a way that will, assuming a number of um, boxes are checked, will be excluded, the property will then be excluded from the estate of the client. So with a QPERT, client transfers property to this irrevocable trust that qualifies as a QPERT. There are sample QPERTs under RevProc 2003-42. Um, the code section that 
deals with QPERTs is 2702A3 big A and the regulations there too. Client is the beneficiary of the QPERT for a term and you can determine what that term is with the client. The longer the term, the smaller the gift of the remainder interest. So the value of the property and the gift tax exemption left for the client is really gonna help drive what that term is as well as the health of the client. At the end of the term, oftentimes um, descendants are beneficiaries of that trust or the keeper could pour into another trust. It's pretty flexible at that point. Client uh, outlives the term, as I said, the property won't be included in his or her estate. And at the time of the transfer to the trust, the value of the remainder interest is the value of the gift. So it's a way again to minimize use of gift tax exemption, but move property out of um, out of the estate. The transaction um, of this type into a QPERT is the, the transfer of a personal residence as defined under the Internal Revenue Code. Personal res residence includes um, the principal residence of the client and one other residence. So the vacation house counts as one other residence. Um, if you have a client who's single but has multiple vacation homes, they can't do it with multiple vacation homes. They could just do it with one. If you have clients who are spouses and they have multiple vacation homes, they could each do a separate QPER for a separate vacation home, and then they could, one or both of them in a combination, could do a QPER for their personal residence. Another method of transferring property to future generations or vacation properties to future generations can be the use of an irrevocable dynasty trust. Clients love these trusts. This is sort of when they're talking about making sure that this property is around for future generations, this is what they're talking about. They want it to be in the family forever. Um, it can be transferred to an irrevocable dynasty trust created during life or it could be held in a dynasty trust that's established at death through the revocable trust um, of the client or may pour over into a different type of trust. The benefit of a lifetime transfer is that it's a completed gift into the trust and therefore it's not included in the client's taxable estate, assuming that the client does not um, utilize that property after the gift as though he or she still owns it. So if a client does make this type of irrevocable gift into an irrevocable trust, they'll have to pay uh, rent to the trust if they want to use it as though it's their own and there are ways to do that. Detriment to using this type of transfer for a vacation property, there's no step up in cost basis. And whenever you're giving a gift of anything, the gift carries lifetime gift. The lifetime gift carries with, with it the cost basis that it had in the hands of the person making the transfer. So if the client transfers a vacation home to um, an irrevocable trust and the client bought the house for a million dollars and now it's worth five million dollars, the, there won't be the benefit of that step up in cost basis when the client dies. After the client dies, cost basis will still be in the million dollars. And um, and again, if they want to use it after they make the transfer, we'll need to pay rent 
in order to make sure that the gift is respected. Alternative is to do a transfer on death. So this would be, as I said, either in the terms of the client's revocable trust or in the terms of a seventh trust that um, the revocable trust pours over to. The benefit here is that the client can continue to use the property for their, his or her lifetime and the property gets a step up in cost basis. Detriment is that the property is included in the taxable estate of the client. When I'm talking about cost basis too, I should mention that it, it may not matter to your client um, if there's no intention or future need to sell the property. Uh, but if you, know, you get into the second generation or third generation and they need to sell the property because nobody wants to use it anymore or, or they can't um, afford to keep up the property, then there's going to be an, a really large capital gain. So you have to weigh the pros and cons of what the appreciation is and the, the estate tax exposure there with what the, um, the capital gains tax will be if the property ever has to be sold. Um, as I said, clients love this. They, you know, it's this property for future generations, but consider the length of the trust. If you have clients who come in and, and I'll just say typically it's a couple who comes in and as I said, they've built all these memories there. They want to make sure that this property is there for their children and their grandchildren, and their great grandchildren. Well, when you're dealing with a family with let's say three children, the three children might be able to make it work with sharing time at the house and and who's caring for what and who's responsible. But then you get into the grandchildren's generation. How many are there in that generation? And if you go even further to great-grandchildren, now you're talking about a lot of people having to split time at a property that some may want to use, some may not want to use, some may not get along with each other and could cause family arguments about who gets to use it when. Um, so I, I think it's important to really think about how long this is intended to last for. And also, um, depending on the terms of the trust, et cetera, the trust can provide asset protection so that, again, if it's fully discretionary under Massachusetts law, creditors can't of the you know, future beneficiaries, kids, grandkids, et cetera, can't come in and force the sale of the house or get the assets of the trust um, if it's drafted appropriately. When I'm talking, uh, talking about funding the trust too, so when the property is transferred to the trust, it generally for most families does not do future generations any good to just transfer a house there or a piece of property there with no other liquid assets at all. Because who's gonna be responsible for paying for the utilities, the maintenance, upkeep, if it gets rented out a management company. Um, so I do always urge clients to fund the trust realistically with an amount of liquid assets that can truly carry that trust for a period of time. The third option um, that I see pretty regularly with Vacation Home is the use of an LLC. An LLC can do two things. It might provide asset protection if there is a business purpose for the LLC, meaning that the property is rented out sometimes. Um, but even if the property is not rented out sometimes, and therefore there really is no asset protection, the structure of an LLC provides some flexibility for families who are owning this type of property. Um, oftentimes, 
where a property is owned by an LLC, the members or the owners of the LLC enter into what's called a joint usage agreement. And this is an agreement where um, all of the members or in some cases like family sort of groups, depending on whoever the highest generation is, will enter into an agreement about who gets to use the property when, um, how bills are paid for the property, who's responsible for things like mowing the lawn, or are they just gonna hire somebody? It really is, is more flexible than a trust. Um, it also enables family branches to buy each other out. So going back to my scenario where the couple wants to leave their vacation house to their three kids and future generations, if the property is on Martha's Vineyard and two of the kids live on the East Coast and the other kid lives in Hong Kong with her family, uh, likelihood of them coming over to Martha's Vineyard to use this property on a regular basis is pretty small. And she might not want anything to do with this vacation property anymore. So there is the potential with an LLC for other family groups to buy out a group that, uh, that isn't interested in participating in this anymore. Um, as I said before, if it's rented out, you'll get the asset protection of the LLC because there is a business purpose. Um, and also the, the use of an operating agreement with an LLC provides some flexibility because the operating agreement can be changed as this goes down the generations. So if, um, for example, clients die, the couple dies, there are three kids who are the survivors, the three children might be managers or they might elect one of them to be a manager, but they all have certain voting rights. When that generation dies, let's say there's nine beneficiaries now or nine owners, they can structure the LLC operating agreement in a way that really works for them in family units or individually, however it works. So again, flexibility is key here. And as I just mentioned, every child's family can participate in management. The detriment, and sometimes I get pushed back on this, is the annual filing fees. It's $500 in Massachusetts right now, or $520 if you file online. I tell clients to think of that like an insurance policy. In the grand scheme of things, if they have a property that's worth this much money that they want to um, protect for future generations, that $500 filing fee shouldn't be the one thing holding them back. There are different ways that the LLC can be owned. Um, during the client's lifetime, the client might choose to own the LLC 100% in their own name or the revocable trust might own it. Uh, if, they, if the client does own it, then of course it's included in his or her estate for estate tax purposes when they die. Um, client could establish Class A voting and Class B non-voting interests. In that case, um, they may choose to transfer either by gift or sale the non-voting interests to the children or to trust for the children so that the client still maintains control over the property, but they're divesting the value um, to future generations so that what is included in their state, maybe that class A voting interest, is not nearly the same value as what uh, would have been if the whole property was in their estate. Again, in this scenario, if the client chooses to transfer all of the membership interest in the LLC to the kids, then um, if the client wants to use the property, they're gonna to have to pay rent to the LLC. The, if the client chooses 
to um, transfer the vacation property at death or after the client's death, children can just inherit the LLC membership outright, same way as if they received it by um, sale or gift during lifetime. They can own it outright, or it can be owned in separate trust shares for the benefit of the kids. Moving on to intellectual property rights. So there are three types of IP rights, IP intellectual property that clients may own. Patent rights, copyrights, or trademark rights. All IP rights may be transferred into a trust and or an LLC. Um, planning considerations. When funding a trust, is what I really was referring to, consider funding the estate plan um, as it's required what I've run into many times is clients, by the time I see clients, they, um, you know, if they're a musician, they have all these different types of um, copyright, if they're a writer and if they've been uh, recorded and et cetera. You see the same thing even um, in contexts where people are working for property development companies and they own, you know, little shares of a lot of buildings. Same theory, although that's not an IP right. Um, and, and also writers. Writers might have contracts with a dozen different publishing houses. And the earlier you can work with the client to figure out what these assets are and to transfer title to them to their trust, the better. Because the client's gonna be able to facilitate the conversation with the people you need to talk to. And the client will then start thinking about it every time they sign a new contract so they can say, oh wait, I shouldn't sign this in my own name. I should sign it in the name of my trust or my LLC. And however you decide to structure that with the client. But if you have to figure all this out after they've passed away, it is impossible sometimes because there are companies they worked with 25 years ago that um, they're not even thinking about anymore and the family forgets about until a uh, sort of one-off royalty check shows up three years later. So transfers of patents and trademarks are done through the Patent and Trademark Office in Washington, D.C. Transfers of copyrights are done with the Library of Congress. You can do the transfers of patents and trademarks online, um, but you have to still do snail mail for transfers of copyrights with Library of Congress. Once you make transfers, everything is public record, which is why um, I often have clients use either a simple trust whether it's just a very short form trust. Sometimes I have clients use a nominee trust because it's just so straightforward and simple, um, or an LLC that is designed only to own these types of rights so that the client knows that this is where all rights go, the agent knows that, um, entertainment attorney, if they have one, knows that. Everybody sort of just knows, has a copy of this and knows, and it's very simple. It doesn't include any, any of the personal wishes or the dispositive wishes of the client. It's truly just meant to hold these types of assets. Special considerations to think about with copyrighted property like artwork, library, uh, literary rights, sorry, and uh, music is they have contracts everywhere. They have contracts with agents, with publishers, with production companies, theaters, music producers you are gonna to wanna to see all of the contracts. Um, the best way usually to 
get copies of the contract is not through the client. Every now and then they might have some of them, but really it's going to be that agent, publisher, production company, etc. that can provide you with a copy of the contract. Additionally, the entertainment lawyer, if they have one, is a source of all of the information or usually most of it because they've been involved in the negotiating of all of these contracts and they are going to be sort of one-stop shop for you to at least figure out what's there. Um, if they don't have it, they will be able to tell you in most cases where to find it. So I would start with talking to them. I put a little quick note in here about royalties. Royalties are not intellectual property rights, um, but the royalties can be directed towards trust as well. If, if clients have rights to royalties under contracts, um, you can also assign those to trust or LLC. Drafting considerations with um, IP rights. Consider naming a separate trust trustee or administrator with these types of interests. It should be somebody who either knows the client really well and is familiar with their um, specific industry or somebody who knows the, at least the industry very well and is, and is going to know what to do with these types of assets, how to administer them, what needs to be filed or who to talk to about what needs to be filed, things of that nature. And artwork specifically is something that, you know, clients love to talk about their artwork and they have these big plans for it. There are no guarantees, for example, if a client says, oh, I'm just gonna leave it all to the Peabody Essex Museum. There's no guarantee that the Peabody Essex Museum wants that artwork and has any ability to display it and or store it. So I think it's really important to have conversations with your clients about if they wanna give it to charity like a museum, have those conversations during lifetime. If they want to sort of divvy up the collection, make really specific plans that are in writing about that. This is not the same thing as your tangible personal property memo that accompanies a will. Um, it really needs to specify which items are to be sold if that's going to be the case. Uh, which items are going to be distributed to beneficiaries, um, which items are going to be distributed to charity. If there are any special terms that are supposed to go along with those, the client should be really specific. Um, and the client's documents should include a provision that says any um, packaging and shipping of artwork is to be paid as an administrative expense of the estate. So that covers everything that I had planned to talk about today. I noticed there are a few questions, so um, I'll let Priya jump in here. Thank you, Kelly, that was wonderful. Um, so I'll probably just take them um, as Kelly's presentation was organized, so we'll start with the Eiler questions. Um, let's see, can you please explain again how use of an Eiler minimizes use of the GST exemption? Yes. So if the islet benefits future generations, not just children, when gifts are made to the islet, they're usually made to pay the premium amount. Um, and in the example I gave before, I think I said, the, let's say the annual premium was $10,000. So the allocation of GST exemption to that trust, which is designed as a dynasty trust, 
is that $10,000 premium amount instead of having GST exemption paid, allocated to the death benefit that's paid out if the life insurance policy was owned by the insured and included in his or her estate. So over the course of time, if the premium is $10,000, maybe there's a use of $250,000 worth of GST exemption instead of two and a half million if that was what the death benefit was on that um, life insurance policy. Perfect, thank you. Um, okay, thank you for mentioning company provided life insurance policies. After filling out the HR forms to release all rights to the policy to the islet, is there uh, the usual three year waiting period? Yes, there is, that's a great question. I should have mentioned that. Uh, yes, anytime the insured has rights or incidents of ownership that they give up over life insurance, there is that three-year waiting rule. The only way to avoid that three-year waiting rule is to have the trust established first and then have the trust purchase the policy. Because that can never be the case with company-provided life insurance, um, the company-provided life insurance always has that three-year rule. Thank you. Okay, I think I got the GST question. I'm sorry, the eyelid questions. I'm sorry if I missed any. Um, okay, so on to vacation residences. Is there, and I think just in general with, um, with this is a step up question. Is there a step down in basis when the fair market value at the date of death is less than the cost basis or do the bennies get the cost basis if it's higher than the fair market value? Well, it's the, so, oh, sorry. I was um, thinking yes. about that question. Again. Let me so we can start it. We can do uh, two parts, I think. So if, if the, is there a step down in basis when the fair market value at date of death is less than the cost basis? Yes. Okay. The fair market value at date of death is um, the cost basis for moving forward. Okay. I think that answers the second question too. Um, and how do valuation uh, date elections work in a declining market? Um, I'm not sure if that's like an alternate valuation question. That's what I wasn't sure either. Um, oh, I'm just trying to find that question. It's um, a few questions up from Nancy Weissman. Thank you, Nancy. It's part of the step down question. Oh, oh, oh okay. yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, In a declining market, um, I think that you have to be on top of that um, the alternate valuation date and have everything valued again because it could be that the uh, the overall state is valued less on the alternate valuation date, in which case you'd make the election to use those values. Um, it's important to note also with the alternate valuation date. Um, it has to be an overall benefit to the estate for you to use it. So you can't pick and choose assets. You have to look at 
all of the assets on the date of death and then all of the assets on the alternate valuation date to make a determination about which of those dates you're gonna use for valuation purposes. Okay, thank you. I think that's the only, I guess I have a question on vacation residences. Um, aside from what clients tend to like, if you have experience on the implementation of these structures like dynasties, trusts, and LLCs, and maybe one generation later, do you have an opinion on what has been best for, in terms of family harmony? <laughs> yes. So I would say if the client's really dead set on making gifts of these assets or transferring them into structures um, that benefit future generations, I prefer the use of an LLC because it does provide future generations some flexibility. I often do couple that with the membership interest being owned by trusts for the different, um, like for each child and their descendants would have their own interest in the LLC. Um, that just has more to do with trust planning and, and asset protection than anything else. But it, it does, the LLC gives um, the kids the feeling that they get to participate, that it hasn't just been laid out for them. And there is that out valve if one of the kids doesn't want to ever use this house but feels like um, they can never get anything for that part of their inheritance. Uh, with the LLC, as I said before, um, families can buy each other out. And so it, it just provides more options for them in a manner that still keeps the property in the estate. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Okay, so we'll move on to IP rights. Um, can you explain how to obtain forms to transfer I, uh, intellectual property rights to a trust? Yeah, so there's the website for the Library of Congress. You can find forms there and you can also find forms with the Patent and Trademark Office online. Um, I will tell you that in the past, especially with patents, I have used an IP attorney to help with funding oftentimes clients are not filing their own patent applications and so there's already been an attorney involved on the end, on that side of things it's just a lot quicker because they know people at the patent office they can get it filed pretty quickly um, and help streamline the process thank you and i think this is with respect to your your last client uh, comment on artwork mm -hmm. can you recommend a template for artwork I don't know that there's any template. Um, usually what I do is, if possible, I start with the most recent appraisal of the artwork and I have clients go through it and make notes about each of the pieces of artwork. Um, it, I don't care necessarily in that moment what the, the most recent valuation was. I care really that the client's taking the time to sit down and look at what their collection is. Because they often, if they're just talking to you about it, sort of forget about, you know, some pieces here, some pieces there. Um, some pieces that might not even be the most expensive pieces, but might have a ton of sentimental value. So it really helps if you can start with a list like that, that makes them focus on it. And I usually do that after the sort of um, phase one estate plan is signed with, you know, your trust, durable power of attorney, et cetera, because I want them to be comfortable with the fact that their documents have been signed 
they're not worried about that anymore and they can really sit down and this is sort of phase two, we have to sit down and focus on this. Okay, um, this is perfect timing. I'm so impressed. <laughs> um, thank you both for your wonderful presentations. I thought they were super informative and really clear. I'm sure everybody feels that way, except they just can't talk to you or see you in person. So I will give you a round of applause on behalf of everybody. Um, again, the material should be sent out to you shortly. Um, and please reach out to any of us with questions. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you all.